Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Incredible passage. One run-on sentence in the original language. Uh, Paul got carried away, uh, got so excited that in the original language, that is one super long run-on sentence. So let's go back and let's unpack that slowly. Uh, The first phrase there, my translation, by the way, I usually teach out of the ESV. Brian does too on Wednesday nights because I study out of the ESV. I know we use the CSV uh, on Sunday mornings, so uh, apologize for going back and forth, but my my study Bible and hence my journaling notes are in the ESV, so that's what you get. Uh, And the ESV, the first word is finally. Is it that way in the CSV as well? It says, in addition, okay, so because the long joke about this rendering is the word finally, and Paul is only halfway through the book of Philippians. To the point, as the old story goes, one kid one time in church leaned over and asked his dad, the preacher keeps saying finally, what does that mean? To which the dad said, absolutely nothing, son, right? So when you hear a preacher say finally, like we're just getting warmed up, right? Uh, So you could probably translate that in a number of ways. So then uh, is the way that D.A. Carson suggests translating it. But yeah, so he's not saying like he's coming to the end, but he's saying coming out of what we've talked about so far uh, in the first two chapters, he's transitioning to say, so then my brothers, there it is again, rejoice in the Lord, that there is joy in knowing Christ. And as we talked about that, joy is bigger than our circumstance. That joy is bigger than our situation. And so rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. What is Paul saying when he says that? In essence, what he's telling us is that the church will be protected from legalism and false gospels by studying the true gospel regularly. Methods of ministry will change, but the message must not. Every church should be a same things church. So the idea is, is that Paul's saying, listen, if I have to keep writing to you about the gospel, I don't mind doing that because I don't ever want to assume the gospel. We always have to be intentional to be sure that we come back to the gospel time and time again. God never takes us past the gospel. 
A lot of us have that understanding when we're kids, okay? I understand the basics. Jesus came, he died for me, he died for my sins, he was resurrected, like I get that. Can I move on to the deeper stuff? And the answer is no. Because what God does is he always takes you deeper and deeper into your understanding of the gospel and how it applies to more and more facets of your life, of your marriage, of your parenting, of your relationships. He helps you understand it, how it applies to your work, to your school, to your neighboring, uh, to your priorities, to your checkbook. There is always more understanding of the gospel for us to grasp and understand. And in essence, that was, was Paul saying. He's like, listen, the safest thing for me to talk about on a regular basis with you is the gospel, because we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. We need to be reminded of it. We need to be versed in it. And in doing so, that fortifies us. Again, away from the, the legalism of the Judaizers, it, it fortifies us uh, from the false gospels that tempt us on a regular basis. And so that's, in essence, what he's saying. We have a value, uh, five values in our church. Value number one is the gospel first and always. And that's to remind us that no matter what aspect of ministry we're engaging in, that we want to be sure that we're rooting it in the gospel, that it springs from the gospel, and that it's pointing people back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what Paul is saying with that little introductory sentence in chapter 3. Then in verse 2, it says, look out for the dogs. And so that requires a little cultural context for us because dogs in our world today are little pets that are domesticized, that we bring into our homes, that we spend lots and lots of money on, that we care for, that become part of our family, not so much uh, in the ancient world. Uh, a few people had dogs that they would kind of keep around as pets, but they were more like country dogs, uh, you know, that would show up at your house and you would feed them, that kind of thing. Uh, but even the way that houses were arranged and structured then, uh, a lot of times animals kind of lived on the first floor, so the dogs would live with them, the family would live uh, in the second floor of the dwelling. Uh, when Tanya and I first arrived in Kathmandu, Nepal, uh, to adopt our son, one of the memories we have, because we arrived in the middle of the night as we're driving to our hotel, was packs of wild dogs that roamed the streets of Kathmandu, uh, Nepal. And so that's the kind of dogs uh, that the ancient world is familiar with. Uh, we've had a number of pets in our family. Uh, so when we first got married, my wife said, it's a kid or it's a dog. And I said, let's go to the pound. Uh, and so we got our first little pound puppy. Uh, her name was Sammy. A few years later, um, uh, one of the students in her elementary school classroom, uh, the mom bred boxers. We'd always wanted, she'd always wanted a boxer. So we had our second dog, a boxer named Maggie that we loved. Um, and then a few years ago, uh, we inherited a dog from another family that was a friend of ours. Uh, he's a black cockapoo. His name is Bentley. We just like to tell people that we own a black Bentley that I'm that kind of pastor. So, you know, just raise some eyebrows. So what kind of prosperity gospel are you preaching down there at the church at Station Hill if you own a black Bentley, all right? But we're not talking about Sammy, Maggie, or Bentley when we're talking about these kind of dogs. Uh, if you look in the Bible, and there's several places where we see the illustration, in the, the first century, they were generally nasty, unclean, dangerous animals. Uh, Jews often called the Gentiles dogs as a very derogatory term. Uh, and so it was a slam. But this is fascinating because Paul now points out that the roles have reversed. They've changed. And he's calling the Jewish legalists or the Judaizers dogs because they're destructive to faith. Uh, and so remember that there were groups of people who in the first century, as they were trying to blend Christianity with their Jewish background, said, yeah, you can follow Jesus, but you also have to follow all of the laws of the Old Testament. 
things like circumcision and, and, and the dietary restrictions and all of those kind of things. And so, of course, if you want context for that, you can go to Acts 15 and read the whole story where the church had one of its first kind of big business meetings uh, around that idea. Did Christians have to keep, especially those coming out of a Gentile background, those regulations and those rules? And of course, the early church, the answer was like, no, that's adding to the gospel. And anything that's Jesus plus, as we've talked about repeatedly, right, is not the gospel. Uh, It's Jesus and Jesus alone, uh, faith in Christ alone that saves us. Uh, And so that was one of the things that Paul was constantly warning the early church about, which of course is ironic uh, with his deep Jewish background. Uh, But he recognized that it was a barrier to the gospel. And one of the commentaries I was reading uh, reminded us, false teachers have missionaries too. I hadn't ever heard it that way, but I liked that quote. Because it's a reminder, right, that, that they proselytize, that they get their message out, that they have their sources of influence. And so one of the things that Paul was always doing was helping them keep their guard up uh, against that false teaching. So look out for the dogs, for the evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh, probably referring specifically to those who would say, you've got to be circumcised if you're a Gentile uh, in order uh, to be a follower of Jesus. Because in the very next phrase, verse 3, Paul says, for we are the circumcision. So clearly he's talking about spiritual circumcision or circumcision of the heart, the idea that what happens on the outside doesn't matter in New Testament Christianity as much as the condition of your heart. He says, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So what this gives us is three really helpful marks of those who know Christ, who are in Christ. Number one, we serve, the word here is translated worship sometimes, by the Spirit of God. And that's one of the things that we don't realize, that those words are the same in Greek in the New Testament. Our word for service and our word for worship, because they are the same act in essence. So whether we are serving people, as we traditionally call it in English, through ministry, or whether we are ascribing praise to God, which is what we would usually categorize as worship, those things are the same concept that we're honoring God, whether we do it with our voices or with our hands and our feet or our evangelism, all of those things are ways that we serve the Spirit of God. Uh, In one of the commentaries I was reading, I I liked this. It kind of gave uh, some parallel names for each of these. They called this upward service, the idea that we worship in spirit and in truth from John chapter 4 in Jesus' conversation uh, with the woman at the well. So uh, those who are in Christ, they serve not under their own strength, but by the Spirit of God that is working within them to carry out that ministry. The second mark is that we boast in Christ, that we glory, right? Doxa, we give praise. We boast in Christ. If you remember in Galatians uh, chapter 6, verse 14, we looked at that a few weeks ago. Paul says, I boast only in what? In myself? No, but I boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we have upward service and we have outward boasting, that we exalt Christ and not ourselves, that we always want him to get the glory. As I've repeatedly shared with you, man is not intended for glory. And so when we take glory, right, and we keep it to ourselves, it warps us and it distorts us. Instead, our boasting is intended to be in Christ. So somebody says, wow, I really appreciate the way that you help my family. Praise God, right? He gave me the resources to be able to help you. 
Somebody comes up to you and says, Don, that was a terrific lesson on Sunday, right? And the answer, and I know Don's heart, right, is, well, praise Jesus, right? You know, praise God, because that's his just word, and he's just using me as the vessel to communicate that word, that that should always be our posture. So we serve by the Spirit of God. We boast not in ourselves. We don't exalt ourselves, but we exalt Jesus. And then we have an inward confidence, upward service, outward boasting, inward confidence. We put no confidence in the flesh, but our inward confidence is in Christ and in his complete work uh, as he continues to work in us. Uh, And so those three marks are distinguishing marks of those who know Christ, not the dogs, right, who are concerned with outward appearances, who are concerned with trivialities, uh, but these are three marks of people who know Christ. And if you stop to think about it, you probably know some people who fit uh, all three of these marks. Uh, and that was one of the ways that, that the Spirit bears witness to the fruit that's in their life. Uh, is that You can say, you know, that guy, he serves. Uh, he constantly points people back to Jesus. And I can tell that his confidence, he has confidence, but it's not in him and his abilities. It's in the power of the gospel. You know? And people who bear those marks uh, are authentic followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so Paul then uses that idea about boasting to transition to another thought. Again, this is one long run-on sentence. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. One of the marks of a Judaizer was that they boasted. And Paul basically says, listen, if you want to play that game, I can go there. I can play it with the best of them. If you want to brag, I have more to brag about. There's a popular meme that goes around these days. Brian was talking about it earlier, right? This is that passage where you'll see somebody say something. They'll say, oh, yeah, hang on a minute, right? Hold my beer is the famous statement. But in a Baptist church, the statement would be, hold my communion juice, amen, right? That's the way we would say it. And let me, let me prove it to you that, that I, I can show you, uh, you know, I can one-up you in all of these areas. The first four are inherited privileges. So you might want to note that out to the side inherited privileges. Uh, And I like the way Tony Morita and Francis Chan in their commentary breaks these down in ways that we can understand them. So the first one is, don't put your confidence in a ritual. And so the first thing that Paul says as he lists his resume here is, as he says, if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. Well, what's that about? Well, that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 17, and then that command is repeated in Leviticus chapter 12, that children who were born to Israelites were circumcised on the eighth day after birth. So it was a mark of legitimacy. In other words, this wasn't a person who was a convert to Judaism. This was a person who was born a Jew. And so the ritual might be the equivalent of rituals that we see in religion or religiosity to this day. And what Paul is saying is don't put your confidence in rituals in order to save you. The second thing he notes is don't put your confidence in your ethnicity of the people of Israel, or that could literally be translated race. That's the word ethne there, uh, where we get the term for ethnic groups. So there's a lot of people who are very proud of their race, and they think that puts them in a special club, in a special category. And of course, the Jews felt that way. Paul was saying he was literally, quote, a pure blood. He was a pure-blooded Jew. His mom was a Jew, his dad was a Jew, uh, and he was born a Jew as well. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. 
If you know your Old Testament history, you know that Benjamin was considered one of the distinguished tribes of Israel. And there were a couple of different reasons for that. One, Benjamin was the only son that was born in the promised land. Uh, And so the tribe of Benjamin had always kind of worn that as a badge of honor. Also, of course, when the kingdoms split, the tribe of Benjamin was the one that stayed loyal to Judah and the southern kingdom. And as you know, they hold it out, they held out for the longest uh, against the Assyrians of the north and, and, and until the Babylonians came and took them over. Uh, some of you know that uh, recently, Brentwood Baptist Church, that we have separated our campuses by region. We have a north region under the leadership of Aaron Bryant and Bill Farrell and a south region that I and Brian Coates oversee. Brian and I have fun reminding Aaron, right, that the south kingdom remained faithful for longer and that we were the last to be conquered. So just want the record to show, right? So just, just saying, it's biblical. That's, I mean, that's all, that's all I want to say about that. But that was part of the point, that Benjamin stayed loyal uh, to, to, with the tribe of Judah. Uh, and of course, the tribe of Benjamin, part of the land that was their inheritance was Jerusalem. Uh, and so that was significant as well. So there was a certain pride that the tribe of Benjamin carried with them. Uh, and that's that idea of rank and achievement sometimes that we have. Uh, And then, of course, uh, tradition. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul was steeped in Jewish culture and heritage. Uh, He went to a private school, even though he was uh, raised in Tarsus. He went to a private school uh, taught by Gamaliel, who was one of the leading Jewish authorities and rabbis. So his parents sacrificed, did whatever it took to basically send him off to boarding school. Uh, the best of the best. You can think of the most elite academy uh, that we have or the most elite college. That was the place that Paul was sent to school. So he knew this stuff in and out. Uh, because he was raised in Tarsus, a lot of Jews in the dysphoria didn't speak Hebrew anymore. Uh, but Paul certainly could. And uh, he could speak it and he could write it. Uh, And so he was intimately acquainted with it. So he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. All of these things inherited privileges, but all, he notes, sources of false confidence. Then we get to the last three, which you might run right out to the side, are personal achievements of Paul's. He says, don't put your confidence in rule keeping as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees in our vernacular today, because we study so much of the New Testament and we see Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees, we think of them as these mean, old, you know, crotchety, angry men. These were the elites. They were, their name literally means the separated ones. There were about 6,000 Jews who had earned the right, had jumped through all of the hoops, met all of the qualifications to be Pharisees. So 6,000 out of you know, a population of millions that, that were qualified to be a Pharisee. So this was the elite of the elite in their culture. And of course, the Pharisees really came into focus uh, in the intertestamental period after the Maccabean revolt. There was this group that said, the way that we're going to get back to purity is by following the law. Uh, and so they had developed very strict guidelines, very, very elaborate teachings Uh, And they said, this is the way that we're going to honor God uh, and restore glory to Israel. And then God will be honored and he'll move uh, and he'll help the the hated Romans being overthrown. They weren't the only group, of course. They're the Sadducees that were more your liberal elite. The Pharisees were more your right-wing conservative elite. And then you had the Essenes who were the monks who went off into the, the, uh, the, the desert wilderness to try to purify themselves. And then you had the Zealots. Uh, who were uh, the, the rebels uh, who said that they should take up arms 
uh, and uh, they fought these little mini terrorist skirmishes all of the time against the Romans. And so you had these competing factions, but out of all of them, uh, the Pharisees were considered uh, some, of, some of the elite. And they were, were fanatics about this. And that's the next one. Don't put your confidence in zeal. Paul says, I was a persecutor of the church, a terrorist by today's terminologies. Uh, and so one of the interesting things that we see in our culture is that we hear this a lot. You're okay with whatever you believe as long as you're what? Sincere. Zeal. As long as you have zeal, man, you do you, you believe whatever you believe. And as long as you're sincere, right, your passion makes it okay. Does that make it true just because you're passionate about a cause? No, but our world sells that line all of the time, in particular to our young people, right? So you be passionate about something, you give your heart to something, and you go. doesn't mean that it's true. And obviously, Paul realized post-conversion what was happening. As a matter of fact, that was a part of the confrontation on the road to Damascus, is that Jesus himself said to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Talking about his church, the body of Christ. And so don't put your confidence in your zeal. And finally, don't put your confidence in your obedience to the law. Paul says he was blameless. That's kind of easy for us to misunderstand. We're kind of like, Paul, come on, really? Like nobody's blameless. But remember what, what the law taught. Paul's not saying he was perfect or sinless, but that he was exemplary. A keeper of the 613 laws of the Torah, the Jews felt like you could do that if you committed yourself to it. But remember, they also taught that you could be ritually clean. And so that's what Paul is saying. Blameless under the law means that he was ritually clean, that he did his best to keep all 613 laws, which is just exhausting, right? When you begin to think about it, can you imagine every day waking up saying, okay, there are 613 things I have to keep perfectly today. Can you imagine living under that kind of legalism and pressure? And not only that, being amongst a group of elites who are continually challenging each other to live up to that kind of a standard, that's the pressure that Paul felt internally. We see it as well in the story of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. Remember, he says, good teacher to Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you need to keep the law, right? And he says, and I have done this. And note that Jesus in Luke 18 doesn't deny it. He doesn't refute that, but he says, there's one thing that you lack. Go sell everything that you have and follow me. And the guy turns away sad because what? The stuff is his idol. It's what makes his identity and he can't do it. Even though he's able to keep the technicalities of the law, his heart is owned by something other than God. And so that's the same point that Paul is making here is that he was able to be blameless in the law, but he was serving the wrong God, a God of his own making, a God of his own achievement. And so it's pretty fascinating when we read that passage to realize uh, Paul just kind of giving out his laundry list of all of the things that he was and kind of his brag board, so to speak. Do you remember those in the old churches? There used to be boards that hung up at the front of the church and said how many we had in attendance and how much money we gave. The nickname for that among pastors was the brag board. Because you walked into a church and you would see right there display. Paul's saying, this is my brag board, you know, or these are my badges. This is what I wear, you know, on my sleeve. This, this is what used to make my identity. But listen to what Paul says next in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything, all of it, 
as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Understand the importance of what he's saying here, right? Christ, right, Jesus. That's not Jesus' first name and last name, right? Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, right, is the Messiah, that he is my Messiah, and he is my Lord. He is my boss. He is in control of all things. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all of these things and count them all as rubbish. Now, if you want to have fun, Google that and see all of the translations of what the word rubbish means. Let's just say they're not all for polite company in church. Um, but it, I mean, it literally is for shock value uh, that Paul says that. That's how you know that Paul was a good preacher, right? He throws something in there for shock value every now and then. Uh, but he literally is saying, I consider it all dung. It's all on the trash heap compared to knowing Christ. And again, these are significant achievements. Any of us in our culture would be proud to have the level of uh, education and influence and power that Paul had in his former life. And yet Paul says, listen, nothing is worth it compared to knowing Christ, which is such an important reminder for us because we're going about building our resumes, building our little kingdoms, building our portfolios, building these things that Paul says ultimately are a rub or a rubbish, are dung compared with knowing Jesus Christ. And so this is the essence of Pauline theology. Uh, at the center is Christ, and Paul's supreme ambition is not just knowing about him, but truly knowing him. And in these next three verses, he gives us, again, just an incredible picture of the gospel, justification, sanctification, glorification. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Christ alone is our righteousness. Paul says, I kept all the laws. I tried to be the best you I could be. And you know where religion found me? It sold me short. I ended up ultimately serving myself, trying to achieve my own salvation. It couldn't bring me all the way home. And so again, it's, I don't know about you, but for me being an ordinary guy, I look at that and it's like, well, if Paul can't get there, then I, I certainly cannot get there. And so what an encouragement to us to know that it's not about what we do, it's about what Christ has done and embracing that as our hope and, and understanding that that's where our identity comes from. Our justification being made right legally with God is both gift, Paul says, and is received by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way so beautifully. For our sake, he being God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I hope you never get over that. That's what I'm talking about. God just always taking us deeper into the gospel because it just blows my mind to think about what that, that passage is saying. That Jesus, who knew no sin, that he became sin for us, so that we, when God looked at us, would not see us in our sin, but would see us covered by the righteousness of Christ. Man, what a gift that is. And it's received how? By faith. So again, it can't be earned. It's not deserved. It's not something that, that we can achieve with our list of accomplishments and our resume. Instead, it is a gift from God. The second thing that Paul notes in verse 10 is our sanctification. Paul talks about 
and recognizing who I am in Christ, I want to be uh, found in him, not only uh, having a righteousness that comes from God, but I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, and I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What's interesting is that order to us at first kind of seems out of place because we know the resurrection is going to happen in the future for us. And so we say, whoa, whoa, sharing his sufferings, why, well, why does the resurrection have to come first? We see for us to be encouraged to persevere through suffering, we need to know that like Jesus, we're going to come out on the other side alive and well. And so that motivation lets us know that no matter how severe the persecution or the suffering that we face in this life, Jesus was ultimately vindicated, trampling over death, right, Uh, by his resurrection. And so we too will follow Jesus from death into life. And that's helpful for us because we really like this idea. If I said, hey, how many of you here want to know Christ better, want to know him more? I'm pretty sure every hand in the room would shoot up. But if I said, how many of you want to suffer like Jesus? We would be like, oh, I don't know that I want to know him that well. But what Paul is telling us is, is that is the way. We have to follow Jesus through suffering. We don't get around it, right? We can't go tunnel under it. We can't fly over it. But his people have to identify with him. And Paul says, I want to know him that badly that I recognize there are things that I'm going to only know about the nature of Christ if I suffer as he suffered. If I suffer as he suffered. And we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but the idea that every person that I know who's suffered, who's struggled, whether it's a persecuted missionary on the foreign mission field, whether it's someone who's experienced cancer and disease, uh, someone who's had a particularly difficult life, none of them would say, yeah, sign me up for that. But all of them that I've talked to who have any faith in spiritual maturity whatsoever would also say, but I wouldn't trade it for anything because I learned to depend on Christ through that journey and that experience. God grew my faith. I realized a bunch of stuff that I thought was priority wasn't a priority, wasn't important, right? What mattered in that moment of crisis in my life was did I truly believe in him? And so that's, that's what Paul is teaching us here and helping us understand. Karl Barth, a theologian, put it this way. He said, the grace of being permitted to believe in Christ is surpassed by the grace of being permitted to suffer for him, of being permitted to walk in the way of Christ. It's a major step forward for all of us to recognize that God has given us the opportunity to be, uh, to be shaped and to be molded through suffering. And Paul wants to identify with Jesus in every way possible. Acts 5.41 puts it this way about the early church. Rejoicing, they counted it worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I like the way that that's said. So they counted it worthy. They, they, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What is that name? Not their name, but the name of Jesus. That Jesus basically said, you can handle this. I'm going to help you through it. And in doing so, you're going to know more of me. So that's a deep level of sanctification. And by the way, speaking of false gospels, I want you to remember this, that suffering is not sign of God's neglect, but proof that grace is at work in your life. Remember that, hold on to that. You won't hear that from TV preachers. You won't hear that, sadly, from very many pulpits in our churches today. But know that. Now, to be very clear, 
when I talk about suffering, I'm not talking about the suffering we inflict on ourselves because of disobedience. And let me just be honest, brothers and sisters, stupidity, right? I deal, I see that all the time as pastor, as a pastor. People come to me, oh, pastor, you know, my life is so hard. I'm suffering these things. And as we peel into it, right, it's not because of suffering that God has allowed to refine them. It's because they have been disobedient to his word and they are living out the natural consequences of that sin. So let's be clear here. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the suffering that comes from pursuing Christ, from pursuing holiness, So let's be sure. Now, does God abandon you even in your stupid decisions? No, right? He will grow you through those. But that isn't this kind of suffering uh, that we're talking about in this passage. Then finally, Paul gets to glorification in verse uh, 11, that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. Some of the translations, I don't remember if it's the CSB, say somehow, right? And so that makes it kind of sound like Paul is unsure. That's not what Paul is saying. Uh, He's saying we have a taste of glory now, but we haven't experienced the fullness of that glory yet. Somehow or by many means possible doesn't mean that Paul is uncertain, but that he's not clear about the details such as the exact timing and circumstances. Remember when he wrote in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 about the coming of the Lord. He starts in verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who, do not have, who have no hope. But then if you go down to the beginning of, of verse, uh, chapter 5, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you about those subjects. Right? The point is, is that Jesus is going to return. And that's what you need to be confident in. The details of all of that, you know, uh, the circumstances, the timing, how that's going to work out. In other words, for Paul, am I going to die in this lifetime and then be resurrected with Christ in the end time? Or is Christ going to come back? That was the, the issue that Thessalonian church was dealing with in my lifetime. And so I'm never going to taste earthly death. But again, that's up to Jesus. Like that's beyond me. That's beyond my pay grade, so to speak. So Paul isn't saying uh, that he's uncertain. What he's saying is, is that it's up to God when it comes to the timing and the circumstances. So there's an ocean of glory and joy in Christ for us to know and experience. There is an ocean of glory and joy for us to know in Christ when we finally set aside our resumes, right? These are the things that I inherited, right? This is who I am. This is my achievements and my list of accomplishments. Paul says, right? None of that matters compared with knowing Christ. Like that's where you're going to find your identity, your true joy that's bigger than your circumstance. That's where you're going to find uh, your true value in life. And one of the illustrations of this, I've seen the most powerfully done is something called a cardboard testimony. Anybody ever seen these before? So a few of you, yeah, (laughs) my wife has. So uh, a few years ago, a lot of churches started doing these. And I had mentioned this um, uh, in a Sunday night service. When we were launching the church at Station Hill in 2009, the Brentwood campus had a Sunday evening service that was struggling to find its way a little bit. And so they basically said, we'll give it to you guys, Uh, which was fantastic because we had about 100 adults on our launch team. There were about 100 other people still attending. So we had a couple hundred people and we had almost a year to kind of have a lab on Sunday nights at the Brentwood campus. And I got to preach and figure out how I was going to preach and, uh, you know, address the messages. We got to train our ushers and greeters and those things. And so I was using that illustration from this passage uh, at one of those services. And there was a young lady 
who was attending. She was, uh, lived up in the Green Hills area, so was attending the Brentwood campus on Sunday nights. Her name was Ginger. Um, Ginger came from a totally lost background. And one of the things that was really fascinating about Ginger was she didn't even know our insider church lingo. So at the time, helping us launch Station Hill was our church planting minister. We now call it the church multiplication minister. His name was Bob Carlton. But in a conversation after I got to know her, Tanya and I were talking to her, and she said, I, I just have to ask this question. Like, I know this is a ridiculously big church, but you guys even have a minister who takes care of the plants around the church? <laughs> like waters them, feeds them. Isn't it funny? Like we don't think about that stuff. We just throw around our little insider church language, but to somebody with no understanding of the church, you know, and what happens, she was totally blown away by that. But after I shared that message, we got to sit down and have a conversation and she became a follower of Jesus Christ. And so she presented to me later at her baptism, which we baptized her a few weeks later, her cardboard testimony. And so the cardboard testimony is basically, this is who I was, right? And this is what she wrote. I've kept it all these years. Mentally ill, abused, drunk, and lost, right? But this is who I am now. Healing from that mental illness. Hopeful, coming out of abuse. Faithful, where she was once drunk. And believing. And I love that she put the I-N-G on there instead of lost. Ginger is now in seminary studying to become a counselor. And so it's really cool what God has done uh, in her life uh, and in her story. But for Paul, right, his words would have been different on here. It would have been zealot, Hebrew, you know, all, all of these things, you know, Jew. But when you flipped it over, what Paul wanted you to see, right, was Jesus. I want to know him. That's what Paul's testimony was. Mine would go something like this, right? On one side, I would say, I'm average and ordinary. I've battled that my whole life. I'm just a plain, nondescript kid from a little nondescript Illinois town who like played ball, but I wasn't great, right? I did music, but I wasn't talented like these Nashville musicians, kind of jack of all trade, master of none. I've just always felt like I'm the most ordinary person on the planet. And what gifts do I have to offer? And what do I have to give anybody? The second thing that I would write is that uh, when it comes to me, I'm a worker and achiever because I don't think I'm, you know, extraordinary at anything. I've always overcome that by just working my tail off. If I couldn't do anything else, I could work hard. And so I'm an achiever. So kind of like Paul, when it comes to, you know, his academic achievements, the way that I got there was by grit. And so that's what I'm about. And then finally, remember the parable of the older brother and the younger brother? Now, the parable of the prodigal son, I'm the oldest of three boys. And my tendency is to be the older brother. And I can be judgmental. And I can be the one who folds my arms. And I was like, really, God, you're going to save that guy? Right? Because I've been working at this a whole lot longer. But if you flip my cardboard over, I would say, I have to recognize that even though I'm an ordinary dude, we're all set apart by God for something. Right? So that we're all made by him to do something, that he gives gifts to all of us. That when it comes to achievement and work, it's good to have a good work ethic, but I'm saved by grace, not by my work. God doesn't love me more if I preach a good sermon or if I preach a terrible one. Now, I'll appreciate it if you don't email me when I preach, when I preach the terrible ones. That'll help my ego a little bit. No, I'm teasing. I'm at a point where I want you to email me if it's a bad one. But don't worry, because my wife will be the first to let me know if it's a bad one. 
I got through one of my first sermons I ever preached in Alabama. And I, it was actually the one where I kind of was in seminary then, and I was kind of putting together the pieces of how to build a decent sermon. And I was like, okay, I did okay. And so I leaned over to her, and I was like, how'd I do, baby? I was kind of proud, you know? And she goes, you said, um, 37 times. <laughs> it wasn't just, you said, um, a lot. She counted. She kept like a little tally mark on her bulletin, you know? So don't worry. You don't have to keep me humble because she will do it you know, all of the time. But I have to recognize, right, that I'm saved by grace, not by works. And then when it comes to being that older brother, I have learned to rejoice that Jesus saves. I've learned to love sitting down and hearing the stories of where God has brought someone from death to life. Like, that's, that's my joy. So we all have these. So maybe a little follow-through activity for you tonight is what, what would your cardboard testimony look like? What words would be on this side? And what words need to be here? because that's what Paul models for us. And so for him, this is what it meant to know Christ, is to know him in these specific ways that the gospel had been applied uh, to his, his life. So to that point, Paul says, now we got to lean into this. And so in the back half of Philippians chapter three, we need to make every effort to know Christ. If he has justified us, if he gives us the opportunity to be sanctified, and if he is one day going to glorify us, then what we need to do is to lean in. And Paul uses a metaphor here and several times in the New Testament that I hate. It's one of running, right? I was an athlete. I played basketball and baseball. I played team sports growing up. So I love to compete. I hate to just run to run, all right? It's boring. That's right. I'll run till I puke if I'm playing a game of pickup basketball, because I'm motivated by the competition. But running is difficult. Why? Because it's you and that distance. It's you and that pavement. It's you and the discipline of getting out there where there's no crowd to cheer you on. There's no parents yelling at you from the stands. Generally, there's no coach, right, who's just saying, go, 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 right? Maybe when you hit the starting line, but then once you're out there on the track or on the trail, it's, it's you and it's your head and it's your discipline. And that's why this metaphor of running is such a powerful one. And so he uses that metaphor in, to describe in a memorable way for us the journey of, of spiritual maturity. Let's read uh, these verses, 12 through 21. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and, their and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So five kind of running challenges that Paul gives us. The first one is humility. Paul says what? I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived there yet. 
all great runners that I know are not content with their time. They're never content. They always want to, the next time, go out and set what they call a uh, personal best, right? That's always their focus. They acknowledge they, they, they need to still strain and train for improvement. Uh, Paul was, remember, quote, blameless when it came to keeping the law, but there was a still higher standard to which he acknowledged he felt short. So what do we need to do? Keep running. And I understand that Paul in this passage isn't saying these things to condemn us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he is saying those things to challenge and convict us that we need to press on and that we need to lean into these things. So humility, as Brian said last week, the soil of all virtue. The Greeks, uh, humility was something to be despised. But because of Christ and his example, it was now something to be esteemed. And so in that, we recognize, and Paul, for all his, you know, oomph and, and all of the charisma that he had still uh, was humble and said, hey, I got work to do. Second thing good runners do, they focus. One thing I do, Paul says. He focuses. He has a singular focus. Growth in Christ-likeness is not a passive stroll. And I'll just be, I'll be transparent. As a pastor, that's what I see in American Christianity. People think that they're just going to stumble into holiness. They think that their life is going to be full, right? If I just show up at church a couple times a week and I get a little dose of the gospel, enough to make me feel good, enough to make me feel inspired a little bit, then I'm good. If you tried to train for the Boston Marathon and you did it an hour a week, you wouldn't be ready to run that thing, would you? And so as I say often, I can't feed you what you need from the word in 30 minutes a week. I can only make you more hungry. You have to choose to want to dig in and to want to train. You have to immerse yourself in it. Uh, these people who run, and I've even read some articles about these crazy people. Actually, my cousin is married to one, ultra marathoners, right? I think marathoners are a little insane. I was a history teacher. You know why marathons are 26.2 miles? Because that was what happened in Greece. There was a victory that was won, and the dude ran 26.2 miles back to, to Marathon Greece to announce that they had won the battle, battle, and then guess what he did? He keeled over and died. <laughs> True story. That's where the tradition comes from. So I'm like, all these people are like, I'm going to run a marathon. Like, you're killing yourself, literally. And then these people do ultra marathons, 100 miles. My, my cousin, they moved up into the hills, the mountains of Colorado, so he could train with thinner air so that when he comes down, right, he can run faster races. Like, these people are insane to me. But my point is, is they reorient their entire life around that goal. What they eat, they watch their nutrition, all of these things. So that focus is important. There's lots of passages in the, old, uh, the, New, the New Testament where Paul uses this idea. 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 24 uh, through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. See, for most of us, as we run the race, we look at our neighbors, we look at the guy sitting next to us in the pew, and we're like, I'm doing okay compared to them, right? I'm closer to God than they are. Let's be honest, we all do it. What does Paul say? No, you be the one, right, to step out in front and pursue Christ-likeness even if nobody else is. You run in such a way as to get the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So don't run aimlessly. Don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I think this question is great for us. What one change could you make in order to pursue the one thing that matters most? If your focus is that, knowing Christ, what's got to change? Because someone who's going to run a race, right, they change their regimen, they change their lifestyle, they change their priorities to focus on that. What's the change that we need to make to pursue knowing Christ? Number three, never lose sight of that finish line. What does Paul say? Forgetting what is behind, straining forward, pressing on. All of these are key for finishing a race well. So don't look over your shoulder. Forget your past failures. Sometimes that's what we lean into, right? We keep, you're not gonna run a race, right? If you're like, oh man, that's, you know, that's, that's chasing me right there. If you're fixed on what's on the past, you can't see what's in front of you. And the other issue that we run into is sometimes our past achievements. Any college basketball fans out there? Last Wednesday night, something remarkable happened. Harold Fambro, do you remember what it was? Duke, did you watch the Duke game? Stephen F. Austin, all right, beat the number one ranked Duke Blue Devils. Let me put it this way. On the power ratings, the Sanger and power ratings, there's 300-something college basketball team. Stephen F. Austin, 222 in the country, beat number one. What? Yeah, it's so funny, man. There's a lot of Ducators out there. Brian Coates somewhere, who's a big North Carolina fan, just grinned. Uh, that was the very first thing he wanted to t- talk to me about, right? So it was the first loss that Duke had to a non-conference team in 150 games at home. So what happened, right? Focused on their achievements. We're Duke. No little school from Texas is going to come in here and beat us, right? You get focused on your achievements, on your resume, on these things. And sometimes that keeps you from what's ahead. A part of the remarkable part of that story, a man named Nathan Bain made the last, last second shot. Turns out that he is from the Bahamas. His home and his daddy, who's a Southern Baptist pastor in the Bahamas, the church was destroyed in the hurricanes. There was a GoFundMe page. People Googled his name after he hit the winning shot, found the GoFundMe page. So they've already raised $150,000 for his church. And that's exactly what he said in the ESPN interview. He just said, God just put me in the right place at the right time, right? Think God's in those details? Absolutely. But for Duke, right, they were looking at their achievements and they ran smack into a loss. So we, we can't follow that example, right? We can't say, oh man, I've done pretty good in the past. We've got to keep our eyes focused on who? The author and the perfecter of our faith. And then number four, We've got to follow faithful examples and ignore the posers and pretenders. Paul says, follow my example as I follow Christ. So it's kind of easy to take Paul out of context sometimes and say, man, he sure talks about himself a lot, but he's pretty clear. No, he's very clear, right? Follow me as I follow Christ. As an athlete, who you train with matters. This theme of imitation is a theme in Philippians. Paul already used himself as an example. He does it here again. He used Timothy and Epaphroditus last week, and of course, Jesus as the ultimate example. In contrast, avoid the enemies of the cross who want you to run after their earthly agendas and their self-glorifying ways. 
I like the way that Paul terms this. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with their mindset on earthly things. So be careful who you follow. Be careful who you train with. Train with the best, right? His name is Jesus. And Paul and other faithful servants of him, those are the people that you want to follow. It's not always, by the way, in a church, the people who you think that they are, right? The ones chairing the committees or the ones on the platforms, everybody assumes those are the people to follow. And get to know the brothers and sisters around you because there are some amazing saints who are faithful and learn from their example, learn from their faithfulness, learn from their endurance and perseverance. Uh, so it's amazing to see the people that God has put around us as faithful examples. And as part of Christ's team, transform the world. This is interesting. Paul switches to the citizenship metaphor. As you know, Paul uses a lot of metaphors and word pictures. So he says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And this was super relevant to the church at Philippi because Philippi was a unique city. It was a Roman colony. And so if you were a citizen of Philippi, you were a Roman citizen. And so it was actually known, its nickname was Little Rome. Its citizens weren't supposed to go back to Rome, right? But secure a conquered city, Philippi, by permeating the local culture with the influence of a Roman way of life. Paul is telling the Philippians that as kingdom citizens, we are to permeate this world with the very kingdom of heaven. That's the citizens that we are. And so I love this word picture of running and this metaphor. Has anybody ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire? A lot of you know that story. Great, great movie. There are so many terrible movies out there, by the way, side note. There are very few that are worth watching, but this is one of them. And it tells the story of Eric Little. Uh, and uh, I want to read to you a little bit uh, more that goes beyond just the Chariots of Fire story, which, of course, is the story about him refusing to run uh, on a Sunday in his best races because of his religious convictions. The story is actually a lot deeper than that. It's actually a beautiful story of grace versus legalism because his competitor is a legalist who is determined to win and has placed his whole identity in winning, whereas Eric Little runs with joy because he recognizes that God made him fast, but that's not his identity. His identity isn't wrapped up in that. But here is what uh, this commentary goes on to tell some more of the story that I didn't know. Eric Little, the flying Scotsman, was already famous when he made a phenomenal comeback to win the 440 in a Scotland-France group meet. His fame increased as a runner and as a Christian, especially at the Paris Olympics in 1924, where he refused to run in his best events, the 100 meters and the 4 by 100 relay, because they were on a Sunday. Interestingly enough, Chariots of Fire inaccurately portrays this as a last-minute decision in Paris, whereas he actually decided well in advance to begin to train for the 200 and 400 meters. It actually deepens the story. He was convicted. It wasn't a last-second you know, struggle, am I going to race or not? He knew the minute the race was on a Sunday, I'm not running that. So he began to do what? Train. Forgetting what is behind, I'm not going to run those races. Straining towards what is ahead, I'm going to train for these races. So Little took a bronze in the 200 and amazed the world by winning the 400 in a world record time of 47.6 seconds, five meters ahead of the silver medalist. Can you imagine not running your best race, deciding to run another one, training for a couple of weeks, and you set a world record at it. These kind of guys make me sick, right? But get this, runner that he was, that was only one manifestation of his devotion to Christ. In 1925, having completed his degree in science at Edinburgh, 
and a degree in divinity, he set sail as a missionary to China with the China Inland Mission. In 1932, during his first furlough, he married Florence McKenzie. In 1941, facing the growing threat of Japanese occupation in China, he sent his wife and three daughters to Canada to stay with her family while he stayed on the mission field to serve among the poor. Little suffered many hardships, but kept on running hard after Christ. And then in 1943, he was interned in the Wilsheim internment camp, where he again cheerfully served those around him. In 1945, at the age of 43, age of 43, I'm 44, Eric Little died of a brain tumor that may have been caused by malnourishment and overwork. Little's grave was marked by a simple wooden cross with his name written in boot polish. He's interred now in the Mausoleum of Martyrs in a city in China. I do not know what the inscription says on his cross, but this commentator says, if I were to imagine one, it would be, he died running for Jesus. So may we all die running with and for Jesus. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take some questions. Lord Jesus, thank you. Uh, Thank you for Paul's testimony. God, thank you for the marks of what he saw distinguishing those who uh, want to truly know you and that he was willing to lay aside his achievements and his inheritance and all of those things and consider them rubbish with comparison to knowing you. God, thank you that you transformed him and you transform us, not by our righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ. And God, thank you that that causes us to want to lean in, to press forward and onward, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead in order to know you more uh, so that we can make you known. So Father, help us to apply these incredible truths to our lives, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Brian, come and join me. What we got tonight? Kept stumbling on this rug. I would not survive in a first century Jewish home. I'd trip over the rug. I was a little worried about you there for a minute. I thought we were going to lose you back. We actually have a couple of statements, a couple of questions, and okay. then some smack talk. Mm. So that's always good. Always good. Said uh, The first was a statement that I've often found it stunning that the one through whom all things were created actually came as a baby and had to learn to use his hands, walk, etc. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Right. Amen. The second was the question of what was the mutilation of the flesh. And that, that goes back to the circumcision because then Paul talks about in the next verse, right, that we, have a circum- that we, have, we are of the circumcision because we're, we are circumcised in the heart. Uh, the next one was Paul was an Israelite but a Roman citizen. How did that work? They hated each other. <laughs> and that, that's true. There were, what, three ways to become a Roman citizen, right, by birth, by purchasing it, or by military service. Is that's that right. right. Oh, very good, yeah. That's pretty good for an old man. That was awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, we think, and Paul was born in Tarsus, which would have been a Roman Roman uh, city at the time. So it right. was probably a birth citizenship. Yeah, is that the yes. understanding? And while they hated, when because they were um, occupied by Rome, they hated the occupation. Mm-hmm. They had the power of Rome over them. That's what they didn't get along with. But there yeah. were advantages because you were born in the Roman Empire as a Roman citizen. Paul had advantages which he exerted. Right. Right. Yeah, and being born in Tarsus, you know, again, a lot of the intense hatred of the Romans. I mean, everybody hates being occupied, um, but, but among the Jewish people in particular in Israel, uh, they hated the occupation. And so Paul was born outside of that and, of course, would know of that hatred. But it's another classic example of how God always knows what he's doing. And so clearly he had uniquely positioned Paul uh, to be, as it says in Acts 9, his chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, that he had 
all of the, this unique background, this unique insider knowledge of Jewish culture, that he was very fluent in Hebrew and Greek, that he also had Roman citizenship. And so it's another one of those situations. I think I've shared with many of you the testimony for us of, you know, when we moved to Middle Tennessee and we couldn't afford a house in Brentwood or Franklin on youth minister salary, so we buy a house in Spring Hill and we're like, really, God? Like, this is what you would do. Well, what was God doing? dropping us in the middle of a mission field. See, God always knows what he's going to do in a person's life. And so this was just another evidence of, of God knowing how he was going to use Paul. Exactly. And he does that for each of us, right? E- each of us are specifically equipped for the mission the Lord has for us. That's right. Right. All, all of us are uniquely gifted. All of us are uniquely given those things. All of us are uniquely placed, right? Where you are is not an accident. Where you are is the providence of God. And so, and so that's how we serve him. Next one is, is smack talk. Um, it says, so it's safe to say you will not do the Ragnar Relay next year. The Ragnar Relay is where you <laughs> run from Chattanooga to Nashville. Okay. I, I, I know you're stunned by this. I am not a long-distance runner. Okay. All right. I run about 40 yards. I figured that's turned the other cheek. If you're still there, it's the Lord's providence for me to whip you. That's kind of the Lord built me to fight. That's uh, kind of all uh, I got, man. I, you know, I, yeah. I, you know, I don't drive 26 miles without the cruise yeah. control. Here's the interesting thing. I was asked to participate in the Ragnar this year. I didn't. We had a lot going on, and it was kind of late in the game for me to train. However, my wife will tell you, I have considered it, and here's the reason why. Because you're not running the whole 100 miles by yourself. It's more of a team thing, right? And that's what all of the guys who ran it this year came back and said. It said, you know what? And it was, by the way, that weekend it dropped. Uh, I think it was it's Jeff Swords oh, yeah. had frost on him when he came in from his leg. Like, you know, in the middle of the night, like early in the morning, the frost falls. He got in the van. Everybody's like, what's that white stuff? Is that dandruff? It was the frost that had settled on him while he was running the thing. But again, it's the team aspect. So, you know, but I'm not committing. You didn't hear me say that. So. I'll, I'll drive the van. <laughs> I'll drive the van. I'm, I'm good. I can, I can beat up anybody. I can beat up anybody. I'm good security. Right. I'm a good bouncer. I've been a bouncer at different points in my life. We won't really go into that. All right. So uh, and so let's see. No one stumbles into holiness. Doesn't this seem to imply that your work or works makes you holy? Why do we have to be so intentional about it? It's not. We don't work toward our justification, right? Okay. This is a fa- and this is a fabulous question, right? We don't work toward yeah. right. That's a grace, but our sanctification. Right? It matters whether you go to a Sunday school class or a strip club. Right? That's a blunt way to put it. That's a blunt way. I'm Paul. I'm just following in Paul's tradition, right? Paul's got some blunt language. (laughs) Right? But but it does, right? Mm -hmm. It it does. And and so while our actions do not save us, right? That's why Paul says, imitating what I do, it makes us, it strives us toward Christ likeness or worldliness. Mm -hmm. Every step you take takes you in one of those two directions. Every step you take takes you in one of those two directions. Yeah, and, and understand that our effort, maybe it's sometimes better to, to even kind of preface it and say our gospel-fueled effort, effort. There you go. is a response to what God has done in our life. That's what, you know, Paul is writing. I think it's important the order of these sections, right? He, he basically shares, you know, this is who I used to be. Christ saved me, so now I press on because my response is to say, based on what you've done for me, I, I've got to live for you. Like, that's the only thing that really matters to me anymore, you know? And so it, it's, it's not effort that's in order to earn our way, right. but it's effort that is in response, exactly right, right. To, to the gospel of grace that has taken hold of us. 
And so you're just not satisfied doing anything else. You're not, not pleased at ease. Again, the, the stuff of the world becomes rubbish to right. you, you know, in comparison to leaning into and working on becoming more like Christ and knowing him more. And it's spirit-led. Right, it's spirit-led it's order, yeah. right? Because God's gonna got a chaos, but it's spirit-led, and the spirit will take you places you don't want to go, right? Yep. But it's places God is, and so it's a place you need to be, yep. right? He's done that in my life. He's taken me through roads as like, you know, we've got two, as you know, two special needs kids, right? Benjamin's got cerebral palsy. Michael was born three and a half months early, right? Benjamin will tell you he would not pick. He used to call it terrible palsy, right? And he was gonna never gonna walk with her and die. And he's a junior in college, right? Because of God's grace. And solely because of God's grace. By the way, his daughter's in college solely because of God's grace. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that's, that's how this works. It just bring, it brings it into more focus. A lot of times what those struggles do is make God more obvious. Yeah, that's good. Right? And that's, that's what we got. Good. Man, that was a great, great question. A, yeah, it was a fabulous question. So the segue for next week is in a lot of the Bibles, chapter 4, verse 1, it goes with this section. Therefore, my favorite word, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, beloved. Amen. And that'll connect us to next week. So, Brian, pray us out here. All right, Father God, we are thankful. Man, are we thankful. Um, thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Thankful for your word. Uh, thankful for the examples that we have before us of Paul and, and the saints of the church here, um, that, that we can watch them strive toward you, Father, and imitate those things so that, so that we as a body right, bring glory to God, not just as individuals, but as a, as a body, as a family. And so, Father, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for these words of truth. Change us. Do not let us walk out of here the same people that walked in. Um, when we encounter your truth, we should never be the same. And so, Father, make us more like Jesus. It's the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen.